Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Many of you in the church know that I highly value the 12-step community and the AA traditions, you know, things like the slogans and the bad coffee in the church basements. I think that's all great. And one of the great prayers of the um, AA and 12-step community is the one composed by the theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, his famous serenity prayer. Uh, they really like the first half of it, and I think it's a good prayer we, we could all do to learn, right? The serenity prayer is, you know, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, this week, I was walking into Agway here in town uh, to see about getting my dog a new leash. Uh, you know, Ginger needs a new gentle lead. And I happened to see a greeting card with a provocative title across the top. It featured an elderly-looking white man with knocking knees and large glasses, and he had no teeth, with his elderly cat and dog sleeping at the foot. And he's using a cane to get around, and the title of the card was, instead of the Serenity Prayer, it was the Senility Prayer, a prayer for those slowly going senile. And the prayer went something like this. God, grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway, the good fortune to run into the ones that I do, and the eyesight to tell the difference. Oh my gosh. And here's the thing. I loved that card. I thought it was really funny, but I couldn't buy it, right? Because I mean, who in the world would I give that card to? I mean, does anybody out there, you know, are you secretly there in quiet desperation hoping to God that Pastor Brian would send you a birthday card that would poke fun of your age? I mean, you know, raise your hand because I'll go back and buy it. No, you know, if that's really what you're thinking, or at least shoot me an email anyway, if you're listening to this in the podcast. But I really liked that card. Um, I, I took a picture of it. I'll send it out in the church email newsletter. And I love that card because it gets at something universal about the human condition. Um, It presupposes that our time on earth is limited, and we do well to reflect on that. As the psalmist says, teach us to number our days, that we may have hearts of wisdom. And perhaps, you know, the wisdom of of old age and a bit of senility, you know, that's a good thing for us. We can indeed forget the sins of the people that we don't like and maybe enjoy people that the joy the people that God has placed in our lives uh, for the remainder of our limited earthly sojourns. But today's sermon is a reflection on growing old and really the gift that it is or at least the gift that it will be for all of us. Because in the great story of Joseph, you see the Egyptian vizier, the savior of Israel, we focused on a number of other important characters in the story. Um, But there's one we haven't, and it's a character, if you've been part of the series for a while now, you'll be here with him, because we haven't talked about Joseph's father in a while, a long time. We have not talked about Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is still alive, and so now we're going to take a look at him, and we're going to see how Jacob, the father of 12 sons, the nomadic wanderer from the land of Canaan, ends up standing in the throne room of Pharaoh, 
the most powerful man in the world, offering words of heartbreak and blessing. And what we're going to find today is that Jacob, by virtue of his old age and a century of heartbreaks, he understands something important about the human condition that's important for us to hear in 2021. So let's spend some time now catching up with Jacob. And if it seems like we've been with this family for a while, you're, you're not wrong. Because Genesis is um, 50 chapters long, and he is either the central figure of the biblical narrative or an important figure in the biblical narrative in 25 out of these 50 chapters. And if you've been following our series, you know that Jacob's life is full of deception and death and hardship and running away and trying to survive as other people want to murder him. And uh, despite hitting the ancient Near East jackpot by having 12 sons, Jacob has been through some very, very real and traumatic stuff. And at this point in the story, while his sons are having a reunion down in Egypt, he's sitting in Canaan and he's waiting for his sons to come back. He's fearing the worst. He's anxious that he's going to lose more sons on this perilous trip. Um, and that's when he gets some very unexpected news. And so imagine, if you will, sitting on your front porch one day, drinking an iced tea and watching the sun set off in the distance. Imagine that's you, but without warning, a presidential motorcade pulls up in your front yard. And all of a sudden, big black SUVs and multiple limousines, and the limousines have flags fluttering above the headlights. They all pull into your front yard, and black men, uh, men in black suits and sunglasses and earpieces, they jump out of cars. They start running around to secure the property, and you're thinking, what's going on? This is insane. How is any of this happening? Uh, this caravan uh, is arriving in my front yard and you jump up and you'd be trying to figure out what's going on. That's what's happening to Jacob right before we get to our reading today. Um, because a, a caravan from Egypt arrives all the way up in, in Israel, in Canaan, in Jacob's front yard. And out from one of these ancient limousines pops one of Ju Joseph's 12 sons, the one named Judah. And he pops out the door and he comes up to his father and says, Father, um, I have fantastic news and you're never going to believe it. And I know this is a lot, but hear me out. You remember that one son that you had that we all thought died of an animal uh, attack and we brought you the robe and there was blood and everything? Turns out he didn't die. And through some miracle, he's the vice president of Egypt. <laughs> I mean, what kind of news would that be? I mean, for someone like Jacob. Um, Jacob has thought that this boy, um, his son, had been dead for 20 years. And now this caravan pulls up from Egypt and one of his sons gets out and says, your son that you thought was dead is now alive. It's a total reversal of fortune for Jacob, right? And so with all of this joy and this new outlook on life, Jacob's family, his wives, his grandchildren, uh, all of his other children, they all hop into these Egyptian limousines, which, you know, really it's just wagons, but you had to have a lot of money to travel by wagon in the ancient world. That was a luxury. And they get in the wagons and they all head down to Egypt. And along the way, they stop and they have a church service to thank God for um, sparing Joseph's life and to make sure God's okay with everyone going down to Egypt for a season. And then they get to Egypt and, and Joseph can't even wait. He hops into a chariot and rides out to go meet his father along the way. Um, and, and now what's happening is that Joseph, the vice president, as it were, of Egypt, uh, the grand vizier figure, the second in command under Pharaoh, uh, shares all this good news with Pharaoh and now introduces Pharaoh to his brothers and his father. 
And so there's this teary reunion, Joseph and his father make up, and now Joseph is presented to the most powerful man in the ancient world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. He comes into the courts and Joseph says to his boss, I'd like for you to meet my father, Jacob. And that's where our text picks up today. Then Joseph brought Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's part of where our reading picks up. And it's remarkable, right? Because Pharaoh, the the title, the office of Pharaoh, is supposed to be this figure who is the divine embodiment on earth of all of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And so all of the Egyptian gods, you know, like Ra and On and Osiris, they're all there and they're supposed to put the Pharaoh on the earth to do their divine will. That's part of the great uh, mythology behind the office in ancient Egyptian uh, sort of cultic and religious practices. But now what we see is that this old man walks in. We find out he's 130 years old. And in this moment, Pharaoh bows his head and Jacob blesses Pharaoh, presumably for saving his son's life and and providing for his family and all the good things. Jacob lays his hands on Pharaoh to bless him. And so there's something really spiritual going on here. There's something beautiful where the uh, sort of embodiment of all of pagan gods of the most powerful nation in the ancient world was bending down to receive a blessing from the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a very powerful image here. Um, and I don't know exactly why he decides to be blessed like this ways. Maybe um, Pharaoh sees the spirit of God at work in Jacob's life. Maybe Pharaoh recognizes that it was it was through the interpretation of this particular non-Egyptian god. It was through that god's deliverance of a dream interpretation that his whole entire empire was saved from this remarkable famine going on. I don't know. But whatever's going on in Pharaoh's head in that moment, again, the leader of this great ancient empire, the embodiment of the pagan god's divine will, bows to receive the blessing from one of the great Jewish patriarchs. It's a beautiful thing to see. And the reading continues. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. We actually have some archaeology, some evidence here in the writing that Egyptians had a very deep well of respect for the elders in their midst. People thought it was a really big deal when pharaohs lived to like 90 and 100, which did actually happen a few times and it got written about and people thought that was a big deal. And so now Joseph comes in and he is living, excuse me, um, Jacob comes in and he is living to the age of 130. And so today it's taboo. We don't ask people how old they are. That's considered rude. But in the ancient world, what Pharaoh is inviting Jacob to do is to sort of stake his claim to a lifetime of wisdom and insight by sharing his age. Because once everybody sees that Jacob is 130 years old, there's an immediate sense of reverence and uh, deference that gets put on uh, someone of that age who's still around. You know, the average mortality rate of a man in the ancient world was like 40. (laughs) Like people didn't live that long. And so a 130-year-old man is a remarkable thing. And so um, Jacob, he invites Jacob to to strut his stuff and to say, you're 130 years old. What Bless us with your knowledge and tell us about um, how we should live our lives. But when Jacob does speak and when he does respond, he offers wisdom but perhaps not the wisdom that we might expect. 
Jacob says this, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And so if you've been with this sermon series from the beginning, you know some of the evil of the days of his lives that Jacob is talking about here. Because we know that Jacob is a man of conflict and drama that started even in his youth. He was jealous of his twin brother uh, who was born like a minute before him. And their childhood was defined by conflict where um, Jacob tried to steal the benefits of that first birthright. And it got to the point where he succeeded and uh, Esau was then looking to murder him, his brother. So he had to flee his family to go to a foreign land where he connected with a distant uncle. And his distant uncle cheated him and swindled him. Uh, in terms of his marriages, his freedom, his bank accounts. And so he got taken advantage of for like 21 years. And so then Jacob takes his family and he runs away from his overbearing, abusive uncle. Um, And he only survives that because God intervenes. So that's a whole other thing. But then the kids grow up and the kids start going and making um, a total mess of things where his daughter gets assaulted by a regional prince and then his sons murder the regional prince. But also they come against the entire city and kill everybody. That's in one of our bonus podcasts. That's not from a, a sermon. And, and so God has to intervene again uh, to keep the other nearby city-states from ganging up on Jacob. So, you know, that's not easy to navigate. His beloved and favorite wife, the wife that he fell in love with all those years ago, um, she dies in childbirth after decades of squabbling with um, his other wife in his involuntary re- polygamous relationship, which is a whole other thing, too. Um, there's one story I didn't share with you because it only composes one verse, but supposedly one of uh, Jacob's sons sleeps with one of his concubines, and there's not much to tell other than the fact that it happens. I can't say more because it takes up less than a verse in the Bible, that story. Um, and then, of course, one of his 12 sons dies at the hands of wild beasts, which, you know, he thinks that, but we know that the brothers sold him into slavery because we have hindsight. And, um, you know, one of his sons sleeps with his daughter-in-law in accident and becomes the laughingstock of the whole region. That was a bonus podcast, too, for you to listen to. And then on top of it all, there's a massive famine, and one son is held as a hostage in Egypt in exchange for grain, and Joseph is 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 decided to leave that son down there because it's like, I don't want to lose any more children down there. He's already lost one, now he's down two. And so he's afraid of other sons becoming slaves in Egypt, but... He needs the food, so he sends them down again. And now he's stuck at home, right? That's where our reading picked up. He was waiting for food, but moreover, he was anxiously awaiting for his son's return. And so when Jacob says, few and evil have been the days and the years of my life, we believe him. He's experienced so much in the 130 years of his life, and so much of it is just not good. And when Jacob says that they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning, he's not just saying that he didn't live as long as his forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, right? Um, They live to be older. He's saying politely um, that he is of inferior stock to the great fathers of his lineage, that he's made more mistakes, that he's made more errors, and uh, well, his life just isn't worth anything compared to other people. And so this is a humble and self-effacing note from a man who has seen some things in his life, and he demurs on the honor that Pharaoh wishes to give him. I wonder if you can relate to Jacob, especially my senior friends in the congregation here. I wonder if you resonate with him. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. 
It's a really sobering word from Jacob, one that bubbles forward with a lifetime of deception and trickery and loss, right? Um, There's this trail of figures that we've studied in our readings between Isaac and Esau and Laban and Leah, people who have been caught up in a whirlwind of sadness and injustice that passes in Jacob's um, wake. And so in front of the most powerful man in the world, Jacob, meek and poor in spirit and mourning, tells the truth, truth that we'll later on see later on in the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes too. He says, my life is hard and suffering is present and few and evil have been the days of my life. And then our reading from our bulletin concludes today when Jacob uh, blesses Pharaoh and departs with his lost but now son, uh, now found son, who is the viceroy, the vice president, the second in command of Egypt. And I think despite the glumness and the difficulty of Jacob's reality here, you know, where he says life is hard and full of suffering and evil, like I want to make the counterintuitive claim today that that's actually a really good place to land at the end of the day. That's counterintuitive. Not many people are going to sort of bless that. They would say, hey, man, you know, buck up, cheer up. But I'm here to tell you I think this is great. Because this is one area where the Egyptians and the Americans differ. Um, Over the past maybe century or so, there's been this shift in our popular culture uh, to value instead of the old and the tried and the true, we value the new and the young and the ephemeral. Uh, This worldview that Jacob represents, to be old and to realize that life is full of suffering and hardship and evil, that's a toxic way of approaching the world in America in the year 2021. So we have all these TV commercials that are filled with young, attractive, and healthy people. And even the people in the the commercials for not young people, right? The people in the diabetes test strip commercials and the in-home chairlift advertisements, like they're carefully selective to be old enough to be believable, but like we all know that they're actually pretty young and they don't need the products they're advertising. Um, They're handsome enough to be attractive, but also we recognize, you know, not everyone past a certain age looks that good. And we say things to our children like high school is the best years of your life or, you know, if that didn't pan out, then college will be the best years of your life. But then if that didn't pan out, we say your 20s are the best year of your life. And I haven't yet to find anyone who's saying the 30s are the best time of your life. So maybe that's where the cutoff is, I guess. And every year year that we are alive, there are new exercise regimens and there are new uh, diets to keep us happy and healthy and maybe also immortal or at least staving away illness and giving us this unlimited sense of energy to get through the day. And we bop around and we sing and we dance to songs like Only the Good Die Young. And then we sing, you know, Fame, I'm Gonna Live Forever. That's Irene Cara, 1980, right? And we revere musicians that died at a young age. Musicians like Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, right? They all died at the age of 27. And we associate their deaths in their youth and the young of their life and the prime of their life as if it speaks to some purity in their music. They, they lived a whole life. They did it in 27 years. They didn't have to grow old uh, to sort of give us artistic vision. And so, you know, along all of this, we have our, uh, you know, anti-wrinkle creams and plastic surgeries and our newspapers like uh, the New York Times did some time ago, or was it The Atlantic? I'm not sure. But they publish editorials like life after 75 is not worth living. And they argue for voluntary euthanasia. 
And you can buy all sorts of tchotchke, like throw pillows and frame prints with words like hope and positivity and awesomeness stitched on them to decorate your house with because everything is awesome, to quote the Lego movie. And, um, you know, your home decor can reflect that. So if you are out and about shopping, friends, and you find a pillow that has the words few and evil are the days of my life on it, you know, buy it for me, would you? And I'll pay you back. I really will. But I haven't found that throw pillow yet. I've I've been looking when I go to the store, but I haven't seen it. And so in opposition to a culture that is obsessed with youth and the denial of death and, and a fear of growing old, we have Jacob telling Pharaoh that life is, to paraphrase the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. You know, the older we get, the more likely it is that we're going to see through the falsehoods of our culture and agree with Jacob. We're going to watch young professionals fixate on climbing the corporate ladder with sadness because we know that job status is one of life's most fleeting and insignificant sources of satisfaction. And we're going to have pity on our teen children as they navigate early romance, right? Laughing at the drama, you know, not in front of them because we don't want to insult them. But, you know, we quietly laugh at the drama they're experiencing in school. And we're hoping and praying that when the real romance comes along, that they're going to have a long and happy marriage that goes a long time. And we're going to move from admiring our celebrities, right, who seem to have it made, embodying the perfect lifestyle, to feeling pity for them. Because, well, they seem addicted to the limelight and by proxy, you know, other things. You know, the older we are, the more likely we are to know that college degrees uh, have little or no substantive meaning, that expensive houses and uh, overstuffed bank accounts provide only a modicum of actual satisfaction, and that our bodies are going to break down and suffer from decay, and that that process is going to start around age 20 and it won't stop till the end. Um, There's a remarkable article I read this week in the Christian Century, and it was by a philosopher named uh, J, uh, James K.A. Smith. And this was a column that he wrote that the Christian Century puts together about, you know, when did you change your mind? Was there a time in your life that you changed your mind? And, and so he wrote this article to reflect on a time when he changed his mind. And uh, James K.A. Smith, he teaches at Calvin University, formerly Calvin, Calvin College, And um, he's somewhat of an Augustinian scholar. He really likes St. Augustine. And he's a writer. He's got lots of books out. He loves Jesus. And, you know, he's a philosopher, so he thinks about a lot of things. In this article, he confesses that his original intent in becoming a philosopher was to argue people about uh, into a saving Christian faith. That he wanted to argue people into a saving Christian faith. And so now after writing and teaching and philosophizing for 20 years at this point, he says, you know what? I've changed my mind. He says, as a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be confident, heresy hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with my brilliance, fending off the Manichaeans and the Pelagians with ironclad arguments. But as a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. And when you're older, you realize the feat of character that it takes to be meek. I used to imagine that my calling was to defend the truth. Now I'm just trying to figure out how to love. I love that. He says, when you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. And when you're older, you realize what a feat of character it takes to be meek. And so as we get older, you see, we have more opportunities to see the world around us and all of its brokenness. And we have more opportunities to lament our contributions to that brokenness, too. 
And so Jacob, when he approaches Pharaoh, he embodies this elder wisdom. He acts in a humble and respective way. He doesn't hold his age up as a sign of authority. You know, he doesn't say, as some elder folks do, you know, listen to me because I'm old and I know things, you young whippersnapper. Um, He simply shares how life has repeatedly kicked him in the shins. And we might use language, I think, like poor in spirit uh, to describe Jacob's comment. Or as James K.A. Smith says, we might want to use the word meek. Um, That this is a man who spent much of his life grieving the past, grieving how he treated others, grieving the loss of his beloved wife, mourning the loss of his beloved son, Joseph. And so he has done things which have, have, have caused him to grieve for himself. Uh, things have happened to people that he loved that causes him to grieve. Um, and so we have someone in our reading today before Pharaoh who is poor in spirit and meek and mourning. I think those are words that describe Jacob in his own age. And if those words sound familiar, those are words we also find on the lips of Jesus himself because Jesus says that someone in that circumstance, when the world says, oh, that's terrible, Jesus says, no, um, those people are blessed. They're blessed, right? What does Jesus say? What does Christ say himself about those who are poor in spirit? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does this God of heaven have for those who mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what does St. Matthew teach us about those who are meek? And Jesus' words, uh, St. Matthew says that the meek will be blessed because they will inherit the earth. You see, if you can come to a place where you can recognize that your own days are few and marked with evil, then you're ready and prepared to hear how God has done something with it. This is why I'm not, sidebar, concerned about uh, the age distribution in any church I've been a part of. Because people who've lived longer lives have had more opportunities to see this in themselves and others. And people who are younger, um, they just haven't had a chance to experience all of that yet. And so in some sense, it's not the worst thing in the world if the church skews a little older. Because, well, um, we've just had more time, the older among us, to be you know, stretched out on the wheels of life and crushed. <laughs> You know, anyone who's been in that place, regardless of their age, in fact, but, you know, because we are, our, our senior citizens, or our seniors in our congregation have had more time, it's just happened to them. Um, it's more likely something's happened for them. But, but the Christian gospel is for people just like Jacob, which is to say for people just like you and me. Anyone broken on the wheel of life, anyone who has rejected the world's false vision that we're forever young, whether that's the Alphaville 80s version or the Bob Dylan version, um, the, the Christian gospel is for you. Jesus' death and resurrection is proof that there is something beyond the hardships of life. And this side of the Jordan, by God's grace, we're going to get four tastes of that world to come, which is going to transcend anything good that the world can give us. One of my fellow clergymen offers this advice to his younger parishioners in the college town, and he offers it to them, and I offer it to you, which is this. It is good for you to have your midlife crisis as soon as you possibly can. (laughs) Have your midlife crisis as soon as you possibly can. You don't have to hit midlife to have your midlife crisis. Buy the fancy Beamer and learn that it's fun for a season, but that's about it. Quit Quit your job and go travel the country in an RV and see all the sights. You know, it'll, it'll brighten your spirits for a little while, but it's not a lasting solution. 
you know, go skydiving, travel to Italy on a whim, get a fresh new haircut, change out your wardrobe, go get your motorcycles license, open a new business. Whatever midlife moment you need to have, go ahead and have it. Because on the other side of that midlife crisis is the reality that we are all frail and struggling creatures and that death does not discriminate and we aren't so special at the end of the day. But for those of us who find ourselves in that place, we are a mere step away from recognizing that God's mercy and his, his faithfulness is waiting there for us with open arms. And so friends, our days may end up being short and full of evil, just like Jacob's days were. But the power of Jacob's God makes even Pharaoh, the king of the world, bow his head to receive a blessing. And with that power working on our behalf, we are certain that evil will be defeated, that our sins will be forgiven, and our days will be restored to us through all eternity. So friends, I say to you now, have your midlife crisis as soon as you can, regardless of your age, and be reminded, as the old children's song says, that we are weak, but he is strong. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.